So we're going to be reading, I'm going to read uh, from Revelation chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 1, all the way down through the end of the chapter. So John writes, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. And a face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he called out with a loud voice, like a lion, roaring. And when he called out, the seven thunders sounded. And when those seven thunders sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what those seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, and that there would be no more delay. But in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. And then I heard a voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go and take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. This is the reading of God's word to us this morning. We pray that uh, his spirit would tend to it and give us eyes to see it clearly, ears to hear it, and hearts that are willing to be in submission to it. You may be seated. Well, when we were making our decision this morning whether or not to be outside, um, the final call, uh, we were factoring in, you know, the, the clouds and when the rain might come or whatever. We did not factor in a blazing sun that was just going to scorch the humidity in the air. And so, uh, yeah, you guys doing all right? Need a water break? If anybody needs a water break, just don't feel, just get up and do it. If you don't feel like making the walk of shame here to the front door, you can go around back, maybe get in the, uh, the gym over there, get yourself some water. Uh, we don't want to have to be rushing over anybody passing out or anything like that. So, <laughs> um, Okay, just to give you a sense uh, of where we're going to be going here in, in the next couple of weeks, uh, our plan has always been, somewhat of a tentative plan, but the plan has always been that we were going to take a breather from the book of Revelation uh, for some of the summer weeks, circle back around to it as we move closer to the fall. Uh, and so uh, my tentative plan, I say tentative plan because it could always change, but at this point, the tentative plan is we're going to run the book of Revelation up and through chapter 11 uh, here before we take a break. Uh, Revelation can be very neatly divided up into two sections, chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 through 22. Uh, actually, when we come back into chapters 12 on through 22, we're going to find that we're actually circling all the way back around and retelling the same story from the beginning again, but from a very different perspective and bringing out some different nuances and new, new things to consider. So anyway, it's a good uh, break. Uh, but that's also to say that we are heading towards uh, a sort of a, a nice finale here at the end of chapter 11. So I was thinking about this. I was thinking about it as uh, we're heading towards uh, a season finale, not a series finale, but a season finale here uh, at the end of the book of Revelation. And 
Okay, if you can remember back uh, to when you couldn't just binge watch all your TV shows, but you had to watch them week by week, oftentimes some of those season finales uh, would have uh, painful part ones and part twos to them. I was just thinking about it. I was just reminded that our kids, my kids, in the day and age of Netflix and Disney+, Plus, where we don't really watch live TV or have cable streaming except for some sporting events, uh, they haven't had the privilege of experiencing commercials and being told regularly all the things that they're missing out on in life. And two, they don't have that experience of having to anguish for a week as you're waiting for this, uh, you know, thrilling conclusion to a part one of a season finale. Right? You remember those, like the season finale, you know, part one would gather up all the drama from the, the season so far, and we'd be heading towards this great resolution, conclusion to the whole story, and then all of a sudden it would start to fade to black, and you'd get that dreadful line across the bottom that you always hate to see, to be continued. So that's sort of the experience this morning. I'm giving my kids the experience of that. We're going to set it all up. We're going to draw the drama into a nice little box here, and then just as we move towards a conclusion, we're going to have to say, to be uh continued, right? So that's where you're going. The other thing that sometimes these season finales would do is uh, you would often hear at the beginning of the show, a voice come on and say, previously, right? Previously on Lost, that's my favorite you know, TV show, but previously in the book of Revelation. And we need to do that this morning. We need to kind of, to set us up for this uh, season finale, we kind of need to draw the drama all, all back in, make sure we're all on the same page and where we're going here. All right, so let's do that for just a minute or two. First of all, as we have to do every week, just because of the nature of the book, if you're visiting with us this morning, first of all, welcome. I didn't say official welcome to any visitors this morning, but it's great to have you here. Hope you feel a part of the family and just uh, are blessed by Christ as you're here. Pleasantries aside now. <laughs> uh, we're, we're in this book of Revelation, uh, which is a, a thrilling and it is an incredible book. Uh, that's kind of difficult to jump into mainstream. But so two main things that you need to understand about the book of Revelation is that, first of all, it is God's word to you, to us, in image form. It's God's word communicated to you through very vivid and symbolic pictures, right, that we're meant to look at and to study and to stew on a little bit and think how to apply and all that. Okay, so that's the first thing you need to know about the book. The second thing uh, is that, the aim of the book, as we've been saying, is to pull back the curtain and show some of the deeper spiritual realities to life, the world, history, all that. And it's also to pull back the curtain and show uh, some of what God is up to in the midst of all that. Right? What God has done in the past, what he's doing in the present, what he's yet to do in the future still to come. Okay? Rest of us, right, as we've been tracking our way through the book, Hopefully, you're picking up now the way the book is sort of structured and organized along these series of sevens, right? He has seven initial letters to seven churches, and then we moved into seven trumpets, and now, oh, sorry, then we moved into seven seals, and now we are into the seven trumpets. And if we break that structure down even a little bit further, you might remember from the seven seals that we get one, two, three, four, five, six. But then just before we get to number seven, there's a pause where there's like an interlude where uh, the question is sort of answered, okay, well, what happens to the church, to the family of God, to the people of God in the midst of all that's been going on and they're in one through six? And so that's where we are this morning. We've just did trumpets one through six last week, 
And before we get to trumpet seven, uh, we have this pause in the action. There's this interlude where, again, the question is going to come up. Okay, well, what of the people of God, you know, the family of God through all of that drama of one through six? Okay. Sorry, uh, we need to go a little bit further on this previously in the book of Revelation. But I need you to remember what those six trumpets were all about. All right, remember last week we, we saw the comparison between the trumpets and the plagues that God unleashed on the empire of Egypt when God was coming to deliver his people from oppression and from slavery. All right, and we saw a little bit from the book of Exodus how those plagues were both the liberation of his people, but they were also meant to kind of expose the Egyptian gods as frauds. It's worthless, powerless things that everybody's bowing their knee down and engaging in all in obedience and despicable practices and relation with, right? And so we talked about how, in a similar fashion, what those trumpets are meant to do, again, is kind of pull the curtain back and expose that, yeah, well, that's an ongoing thing throughout history and the world we live in, the culture that we're a part of, that human beings just have this, this tendency, this compulsion or this sickness, if you will, to find these other things other than the creator God, other than the one who had given them life to begin with, other than the one whose very presence sustains their life and makes their life rich and meaningful and fulfilling, right? Instead of living in worship to him, we instead find these, we have this propensity to find these other things and to make gods out of them and to bow our knee and worship to them, whether it's you know, gods of money or power or success or fame or beauty or relationships, whatever it is, we find these things, we put them on a pedestal in our heart, we give to them ultimate value, and then we bow the knee and worship to them. And we give our lives in obedience to make sure that we secure and attain those things or we make those gods happy. And we're convinced that that's where we're going to find life and meaning and purpose, right? And so the trumpets... They aim to both expose that as pure futility. As these gods have no power to give you life that is meaningful and sad, that power resides in the creator alone, the one who fashioned you and knitted you together, right? So they were meant to expose the worthlessness of that, the futility of a life lived in pursuit of these idols. And uh, the especially trumpets five and six drew that curtain back even a little bit further to show you that this business of bowing the knee and worship to idols is fodder for the enemies of God. These idols are tools in the hands of the spiritual forces of darkness, right? These hideous beasts that come out of the bottomless pit, the abyss with all of its smoke and fire and sulfur, right? And these enemies of God, they use these idols, they use this business of idolatry, to pull you further and further away from your creator and your life giver, uh, to torment you and to ultimately undo you, right? Okay, so that's the point of, of again, trumpets one through six. And that leads us all up into here now, this interlude. And as we talk through this, basically, I want you to see something. I hope that you can see that there's actually some familiarity uh, in, in chapter 10 here. I hope some of this starts to sound familiar. Actually, the very first element in the, in the chapter is not quite familiar, where we see this mighty angel coming down out of heaven to John. Uh, previously, it was always John being caught up into heaven or John going through a door into the throne room of heaven. But now this is for the first time where we see this mighty angel coming down to John. 
Okay, but look at this character. Uh, he's got a rainbow around his head. He's got a face that's shining like the brightness of the sun. Uh, he's got legs and feet that are ablaze and fire. And he's got a voice uh, that sounds like the roaring of a lion. Okay, so remember with me now in the book, where have we thus seen a character enveloped by a rainbow with a sun shining as full force or face shining as full force of the sun? Or where have we seen a character who is likened to a lion and who has legs and feet of molten bronze? Hopefully, uh, this is taking you back a few chapters to chapter four and chapter five, where we were caught up in the heavenly throne room. And we saw one seated on the throne who was enveloped in a rainbow, whose face was shining like the fullness of a sun. And then we saw Jesus, who was described as a lion, and who elsewhere in a book, again, has those feet of molten bronze. The similarities are so much so that there are actually some commentators who think that this mighty angel is Jesus himself. Uh, maybe the way, like in the Old Testament, when the angel of the Lord would show up, it's quite legitimate to wonder if that's not the pre-incarnate Jesus that's showing up on the scene. Okay, uh, I'm not so convinced of that interpretation here, partly because there's a voice separate from the angel that speaks a little bit later on in the chapter, and we're told that that voice is the voice that John heard before, all the way back in the beginning, which is identified as Christ himself. So I would probably see a distinction there between Jesus and the angel, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter so much how you interpret that, but what does matter is that you see the correlation. That if this angel is not... Jesus himself, uh, he's kind of like a high-ranking angel that has full representational authority and bears a strong reason. So this is, it's drawing us back into that scene from chapter 5. Another similarity, angel holds in his hand a scroll. All right, you remember chapter 5, there was a scroll there too. We're told uh, in this chapter 10, it's a little scroll, mini scroll. <laughs> Not the full scroll, but a little mini scroll. All right, um, and if you remember, again, previously in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, like this drama or this, this scroll was at the center of the drama in chapter 5. We saw the one seated on the throne who was holding in his right hand this scroll, which contained... You know, the unfolding of his purposes, of his plans for his people, for history, for his creation, for his kingdom. Right? And, you know, the question comes out, okay, so who is worthy to open this scroll, to unlock the seals and execute this plan and this purpose of God for his people and for his creation? And we hear or we see that nobody in heaven earth or under the earth is worthy to take the scroll and open its seals and john weeps right he's standing in here for the suffering church weeping because well this is what we long for for god's purposes to be filled his, his plan to be brought to fruition all this to be accomplished and if nobody's open able to open the scroll well what are we to do and so the angel then says hey weep not look here comes the lion of judah conquering lion he turns he looks and he sees this lamb who had been slain. And in that victory of his death and resurrection, now he has authority to go. And so he goes, the lamb uh, ascends to the throne, and he takes the scroll from the right hand of the one seated on the throne. And the moment he takes that scroll, man, all the courts of heaven and all the hosts and the company in the heavenly places, they start bursting out in song. Worthy are you 
to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and you've made them a kingdom of priests and servants to our God. Okay? So again, see the similarities here. They've got this familiar-looking character. who's got this familiar sort of scroll in their hand. And there's even familiar action, right? Whereas the lamb ascended to the throne and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So John goes and he takes the scroll, we're told specifically, from the hand of the mighty angel. And then he eats the thing. Because <laughs> he's told to. But he eats the thing. Okay, which raises now a whole new set of questions for us. First of all, we could ask, okay, so what's on this little mini scroll? And two, why does he eat it? So we don't know exactly uh, what's written on the scroll. It's never expressly told to us, but this is why I draw the similarities between the two passages. It's fairly safe to assume that there's some similarities between what's on the scroll in chapter 5 and what's on the scroll here in chapter 10. In other words, that in this scroll is, in some way, the plans, the purposes that God has for his people, for his creation, his kingdom. And actually, I think we can take it a little bit further and guess what's on the scroll. Partly because, did you pick up that when the angel, the mighty angel, first starts to speak, the seven thunders sound off. Right? They make their noise, they do what thunder does, right? whatever. And John grabs his, his pen and his notebook. He's about to write down, like he's been doing all along. Okay, you write down the seven seals. You write down the seven trumpets. Okay, here comes another set of seven. Here comes the seven uh, thunders. Let me write these things down. And you say, hold on, hold on a second. Don't write that down, actually. Seal that up. Put it away. Uh, let's do something different here. Almost. That seems sort of like the indication. It seems to be sort of the indication that just when we think we're about to launch into another series of seven that exposes something about life and history and maybe pronounces God's judgment on that life and that history, instead the angel says, nah, don't, actually don't write that down. Seal that up, put it aside. Maybe we'll come back to it later. Maybe we won't. I don't know. It's almost as if we're going we're gonna to do something a little bit different here. And, and part of the reason I express it that way is just remember with me how Chapter 9 ended, right? After the curtain was pulled back and this business of idol worship was exposed as worthless and futile, and as the curtain was pulled back even further and this business of idol worship was exposed as business that God's enemies get all involved with to lead us away from our creator, to torment us, uh, to ultimately undo us. Remember how the chapter closes. Yet, in spite of all that, instead of seeing that clear as day and seeing maybe God's judgment upon all that, yet the people did not repent from worshiping these gods of gold and bronze and silver that couldn't see or that couldn't talk or couldn't hear. And they didn't give up worshiping and serving these demons. Right? We we let that sink in a little bit of how significant of a closing that was to chapter 9, that even though all this is being exposed as worthless and ultimately self-destructive, yet they didn't give it up. Which, in, in the flow and the, of the storyline of the book, is something of a problem. It's a huge problem. But in the storyline of the book, even, it's a problem because this book is aiming at 
a future where people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, representatives from all the nations are going to be gathered together around the throne, worshiping, enjoying God's glorious new creation. And it's almost a sense that, okay, what we've been doing so far, it hasn't produced that yet. It hasn't produced repentance and conversion. And so as these seven thunders are about to sound and perhaps do the exact same thing again, the phrase is, no, okay, stop. Don't write that down. Seal it up. Put it off the side. We're going to do something. We're going to move in a different direction. And so here's the different direction now. I got this scroll. And I want you, John, to take it and eat it. And when you eat it, it's going to be sweet in the mouth. And as it digests and works its way down into your stomach, it's going to be turned bitter. Okay, so now here's the question. You Bible trivia nerds out there. We've actually been here before in the storyline. Somewhere in our Bible storyline up until this point, there was someone else who was given a scroll and told to eat it. And when he ate it, it would be sweet in his mouth. And then as it worked its way through his stomach and through his body, it was going to turn bitter. Who was it? Hey, look at that. Bill calling out Ezekiel. Great. Good job. You can take a water break if you need it. <laughs> you get a cookie at the end. I don't know what it is. All right, good job. Yeah, Ezekiel. If you go open up your Bibles to Ezekiel, if you not now or whenever, go back and read it later. Chapter 3, uh, again, God gives a scroll to Ezekiel. He says, e- Ezekiel, take this, eat it, fill your stomach all the way up with this scroll. It's going to taste sweet. It's going to get a little bit bitter as it works its way in there. And the thing about it, why we, we highlight that is that that is Ezekiel's commissioning. That is the dramatic way that Ezekiel is commissioned as a prophet of God. Right? God's word is given to him in the scroll. He takes it. He consumes it. He digests it. Right? And then his job, now newly commissioned, is to speak that word. Or actually, if you read through the book of Ezekiel, actually to live out in dramatic fashion that word to the people. And another very significant connection here is a part of Ezekiel's job in living out and speaking that word of God is to expose and to confront and to challenge the practice of idolatry that's going, that's running rampant through God's people. God's people were setting up little idols in the temple and they were bowing down and worship to it. They were engaging in all sorts of detestable practices and obedience to these false gods that they were bowing the knee to. And so Ezekiel is the one, the prophet, who's called and commissioned to expose that, to call it out, to confront it, to challenge it, and to also reveal God's activity in response to that. Which, by the way, is sort of one way you could sum up the general job description of a prophet in the Old Testament. Now, oftentimes, if you read through those prophets, the two main things that they're railing against is rampant idolatry and then the wickedness or unjust practices that the people are doing in obedience to these false gods. And, right, so they're called to expose that, call it out, confront it, and they're also to communicate God's actions in response to that past, present, and future. All to say, what's happening here when John is told to take and eat the scroll is that John, just like Ezekiel, is being commissioned now as the prophet who will take and consume God's word, and then he will live it out, speak it out in a way that it challenges, confronts, exposes 
Again, the worthlessness, the harmfulness of idolatry that's running rampant in the culture that he's a part of. Right? In other words, look, here it is. The six trumpets didn't succeed in getting people to turn. Though they pulled back the curtain and though they exposed, you know, the harmfulness and the futility of this false worship, it didn't succeed in getting them to turn. So here's the new plan. John, you're going to take and eat this scroll. And through your life and through your words, you are going to be my vessel of confrontation and exposure and challenge to the people to wake them up to this futile and destructive idol worship. Okay? You see it? Uh, that's really the drama of the chapter. And we could close it there. Uh, but the sun has kind of gone away, so I assume I have a few more minutes here. And in a few minutes, I just want to give a little bit of a preview of what's come. Right? That's the other thing that would often happen in those season finales before, after the uh, to-be-concluded sign. Maybe you just get pre- next time, right? So here's the preview of where this is coming or where this is going. And I'll say it this way. Remember that these interludes are meant to answer the question of what of the church in entirety. It's not meant to answer actually just the question of one individual, but what of the church in its entirety? And that's where it's going to go next week. And just to preview that a second, let me, let me just show you two quick things from the book of Revelation. If you want to, if you have your Bible open, if you want to flip back to chapter one, let me read the opening verses for you again. Or it says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, to even to all that he saw. And then here's the phrase, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Now flip to the closing chapter if you're following along here, or you can just listen. In the closing chapter, after John has been just just given this incredible vision of all that is yet in store for his people, for God's people, for all of creation, like John is just overwhelmed. And in this overwhelming sense of gratitude, he's actually tempted to bow down and worship the angel that showed him all of this. And the angel says to him, no, 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 you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you. And then pick this up. And with your brothers, the prophets, all those who keep the words of this book. See, in other words, here's the thing, right? John is being commissioned as a prophet. But what actually you find as we work way through the whole book, that that John is not a solitary prophet here. But actually all those who keep the words of this book, all those who comprise the collective body of Christ, the church, are called to be Together, a prophetic witness to the surrounding culture that is suffering in this worthless idolatry. The church with John is called to be this prophetic witness that calls that out, that exposes it, that challenges it, and invites people to turn from it and be restored in in relationship with the true life giver, the one who alone has power and authority to give life to the full. Okay? Or we could say it this way. When you look at the whole book of Revelation, especially from the bookends of it, you you get this very clear sense that what is the book of Revelation? It is this word, this prophetic word that is given to who? Angel, John, but then ultimately to the seven churches, the fullness of the church. 
And as the church takes that word and consumes it and digests it and chews on it and it works its way into its stomach and then out to every fiber and tissue in its being, and then as together corporately it radiates out from there, the church is being fashioned as this corporate prophetic witness to the surrounding culture, inviting them away from worthless idolatry, giving testimony to the victory and the glory of the conquering Christ. And again, this is the to be concluded part because next week we move from John to that corporate church, the church through the ages, and we're going to see how that plays out and some of the drama associated with this prophetic witness. But maybe just before we go or before we give that dreaded to be continued, let me just challenge you as you go to just to be thinking about that in a week ahead. To let that truth that you, having been joined to Jesus Christ by his spirit, have also been commissioned by the Father to collectively be his prophetic witness in a world and a culture that needs to have a witness to something greater. Let me challenge you to think about that. Let me challenge you to let that stew in your minds and your heart. Let me challenge you to digest that. Let that work around in there, right? Because... A couple quick things, and we'll close it with this. One, just as we said, the, the world desperately needs a prophetic witness. If the assessment of the book of Revelation is true and accurate, then the world, cultures throughout history are suffering through this empty, worthless, futile pursuit of these false gods that they assume are able to give life that is fulfilling and satisfying and meaningful. And not only that, but they're moving out in dangerous and self-destructive and harmful paths as this idol worship is fodder in the playground of the enemies of God that seek to undo and to torment and to pull people away from their life giver. And so the world desperately needs a prophetic witness to expose that, to call it out and invite them into life, true life, eternal, victorious life. Right, I'm sure if you just think about I don't know, friends, family, neighbors, right? You can, you can easily identify that, yeah, there is real suffering that takes place as people are running around chasing all these idols, assuming that's where they're going to find life. Or it wouldn't take very long for us to just talk about the broader cultural dynamics and say our culture is suffering from that in the same way, the way we, you know, polarize and demonize each other in the name of this great God of power. Or maybe the way there is so much you know, confusion and dysphoria as we live radically self-absorbed and we elevate the, the God of the self and we live trying to, I don't know, worship and be obedient to the God of the self or the way our culture is consumed by or entertained by and even celebrating, to put it most bluntly, death itself, the business of death itself, all in the name of gods of freedom, choice, security, power, whatever. Simple point, culture needs a prophetic witness. Now I challenge you to ponder that and consider that. I challenge you to ponder and consider that, especially as we move into these summer months, where just by the nature of the summer months, you have opportunity to live your life and to live your witness more in the company of neighbors, you know, in the backyard, or friends and family at holiday cookouts, or the broader community when you go to, I don't know, parks or pools or parades, you know, whatever it is. 
Actually, I think it's really neat that uh, uh, a week or so, you're all invited. I think everyone's invited, right? Yeah. Okay, everybody's invited, right, to a cookout at the Sove's house on Memorial Day. <laughs> I, and uh, <laughs> there you go. And as far as I understand, this is not just an invitation to the church, but it's invitations going out to their neighborhood as well. And so it's quite possible this is going to be an event where two worlds collide. And, you know, in a neat way, the neighborhood is maybe going to get some exposure to the corporate prophetic witness of the church body. Right, and that's neat, and that's great, and I would challenge all of you to think of more ways and opportunities where you can maybe engage that, make that happen, you know, if you want some ideas or help in that or some funding for that, we'd be happy to do that because that's who we are. That's We watched uh, Spider-Man last night, uh, Megan and Kate and I, so to quote the, the line that goes throughout the Spider-Man, that's what we do, right? So we do it because the world needs it. We do it remembering, uh, and this is the thing, that though it is a sweet calling, and we'll talk about that sweetness just in a second, uh, there's a bitterness to it. It's a bittersweet calling. Right? Because you know that in our, right, our day and age where our culture is so polarized and so divided, in the day and age where our culture is, all of us, we're, we're so sensitive and we're so judgmental towards people on the other side, right? To live in defiance of the status quo or to live offering an alternate reality or an alternate story or an alternate truth and to do that in any kind of way that's confrontational. And it could be blowback on that. <laughs> there could be friction. There could be trial. Who knows? There could be a bitterness associated with that. Or, uh, as you'll see next week, to faithfully go at our prophetic witness is to stir up and arouse the rage of hideous beasts that emerge from this abyss, this bottomless pit full of fire and smoke and you know, all that stuff. We're going to get introduced to that character for the first time next week that will rage in response, right? So there is this bitterness. There's this warfare that we experience. There's this participation in the conflict, in the battle, in the warfare of Christ himself. And that's the last thing I'll say. I think that's the sweetness of it. Right, as we do this, as we're being commissioned and sent out, right? We're, we're not being sent out on our own, but we, this is the part of the point of the whole parallel with chapter five is that we're being drawn into this already pre-established drama of the exalted, victorious Christ working out his victory throughout history and throughout cultures and throughout the world leading up to his glorious end, right? All we're doing in getting a commission to prophetic witnesses, we're being called into that drama. We're being called to participate in the victory and the purposes of Christ. This Christ who's already accomplished victories over the power of sin and death and his own death and resurrection. This Jesus who has already stuck it to the powers and the principalities, the spiritual forces of darkness that rage against God and his people and his kingdom and all creation. This Jesus Christ who in his victory has secured for you both now through all eternity, this internal inheritance of resurrection life to the full in a fully reclaimed and restored creation made new. Right? And so it's living out a prophetic witness in participation with this Jesus, in communion with this Jesus, commissioned by the Father and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Right? It's all done in communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity. And I think that's the sweetness of it. That's where you'll find real sweetness. 
And so let's be faithful to consider our calling. Let's be faithful to chew on that. In fact, let's remember, even before we go too much further down that road, and we'll close it with this, remember that the main drama of today's passage is this scroll, is this prophetic word first given to us that we are called to take and to eat and to consume and to digest and to work it down into our stomach and then out in every fiber and tissue of our body so that then it might radiate out from us. All to say that our prophetic witness is dead in the water if we're not fully reliant on the word that's first been given to us. It's dead in the water if we're committed to, if we're not committed to not just reading and understanding the word, but soaking it in. And allowing it to do its transformative work in our lives, allowing it to convict and to confront and expose hidden idolatries in our own heart, to reshape us, to remold us, and then to resend us. So before we even maybe fully unleash our prophetic witness, let's first remember that in an act of humility and submission and in joy, let's take and consume the word that's been given to us so that we might be faithful servants of faithful prophetic witness to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we ask these things in the name of that Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.